Okay, we're in uh, chapter 32, 32 of the confession, and I thought I had some extras, but I didn't, so uh, what can you do? Chapter 32, and we are on the last chapter in the last paragraphs of the confession, which we started 92 weeks ago. This is, is this the 92, 92nd week? This is the 92nd week, so uh, there you go. Okay, and we are on the last judgment, the last judgment uh, and the necessity. We talked last time about the importance of the day of judgment in our doctrine. We must believe the day of judgment. Nothing makes sense in the whole Bible without the day of judgment, right? Salvation doesn't make sense. Sanctification doesn't make sense. Perseverance doesn't make sense. So the day of judgment is a crucial doctrine, and we must believe it. And if we don't believe it, we cannot believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the problem in the churches today. No one's preaching day of judgment. Very few people are talking about the day of judgment and the necessity to be prepared to stand before Christ on that last day. But this is the basis for the preaching of the gospel all throughout the book of Acts with the, with the apostles. This is the basis of Jesus and John the Baptist's ministry. Why are they preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Because of the day of judgment that is coming in which all will stand before Christ and give an account. So we must be ready for the day of judgment. And the day of judgment, this doctrine, this teaching, shouldn't be something that we moan under and groan and complain, oh, why do we have to hear about the day of judgment again? We need to hear this it sh because we need to be uh, in rejuvenated each and every week, each and every day. We have to press on to the kingdom of God. We have to lift up our drooping hands and make straight paths for our feet. And whatever is out of joint, we've got to put it back in. And it's the day of judgment that gives us the fear of the Lord that causes us to persevere through the many tribulations of this life and the many temptations of this life so that we enter into the kingdom of God. We must remember the world is passing away along with its lust, and it's the one who does the will of God who will abide forever, 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. And it will pass away on the day of judgment. We don't want to pass away on the day of judgment, but we want to abide forever. But it's only those who do the will of God who will abide forever, and it is the day of judgment that gives us the motivation to abide forever, to press on to the kingdom of God. Okay, so we did the first paragraph last week in an introduction. Today we'll do paragraphs two and three. So let's read paragraph two, and the purpose will remind again of us using this confession is not to rely upon men, but to use the confession as a springboard or a platform to go to the Bible. And in any confession or catechism or uh, statement of faith, whatever you want to call it, the most important part are the scripture references. The scripture references and looking them up to see, does the statement of the confession, does it match up with the teaching of the Bible and what the Bible says? If it doesn't match up with what the Bible says, then you can throw it out. But if it does, then it can be useful and helpful to us. And this has been our practice as we've gone these last 92 weeks through this confession. Okay, chapter 32, paragraph 2. It says, God's purpose for appointing this day is to manifest the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For at that time, the righteous will go into everlasting life 
and receive fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked, who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, will be thrown into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Here they say the purpose of God appointing this day, right? A twofold purpose, right? With one goal. The goal, the singular goal is his glory. To the glory of God is the purpose for, what, for why God does all that he does, is to manifest or to display his own glory. This is why he created the world. This is why he will judge the world, is to display his own glory and to make this manifest and evident. And here, the glory of God is seen in a twofold way on the day of judgment. First, it's seen in the mercy that he shows to the elect. The mercy and the salvation that is given to the elect manifests the glory of God's salvation. His love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace. It shows us the power of Christ to overcome sin and death and all that he has done. So the elect are vessels of mercy Uh, trophies of mercy in order to display the kindness of God, his goodness, his generosity, his love toward the elect. And this will be for all eternity. The second purpose is to display or manifest the glory of his justice and the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. So God does not unwillingly, he's not writhing his hands in agony when he pronounces condemnation on the reprobate but rather he does so justly and righteously and it brings to him great glory, great glory. So there are many who think that the damnation of the wicked, that hell, it's just a necessary evil that God has to tolerate because he gave men free will. But this isn't the case at all. It's not the case one iota. Rather, it is the purpose of God to manifest his glory through their condemnation, and to show his justice, his righteousness, his wrath for all eternity in the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 teaches this. And without these two, this twofold purpose, the salvation and the damnation, Then what Isaiah says about the word of God not returning to him void, but accomplishing what God has intended, then that is not true. Because if God's intent of the word of the Lord going forth is only to bring salvation, and damnation is an unintended consequence, then God's word does return to him void. But the purpose of God's word going out is to bring salvation to the elect, but also to prepare the reprobate for the day of judgment so that there is more justice meted out upon them by the Lord, more condemnation, because not only did they reject God as their creator, but they've also rejected the word of the Lord. And in this way, God's word accomplishes whatever God sends it for. For one, it brings life. To other, it is a fragrance of death that leads to death and condemnation. Okay, Romans nine nineteen. It says, you will say to me, Why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use or another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make known his power, endured with much patience 
vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. So here, in answering this objection from the fault finder to God, of why it is that God, if God has mercy on whomever he wills, and if God hardens whomever he wills, then why does God still find fault if ultimately one receiving the mercy of God or being hardened by God is dependent upon the will of God? Then how can God find fault in man and how can God hold man accountable for their sin when God is the one who is ordaining and orchestrating all things? And his answer is to say, not to answer the question, but rather, who are you as a man to answer back to God? You don't know your rightful place as a creature, as a created thing in the presence of God. You don't have a right to bicker with God, to question God, to question his ways in the world and think that you can stand above God and judge him and determine whether or not God's ways are just and right. Let God be true and let every man be a liar, as it says in Romans chapter 3. Right? The problem that men have is they think they are peers with God. They are co-equals with God. But this isn't the case at all. We, the relationship we have with God would be the same as a piece of clay has with us or with the potter. The potter has a right over the clay to do whatever he wants with it, to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use. He can do whatever he wants. He makes one uh, piece of clay into something that is noble, that is beautiful, a decorative uh, piece of artwork, and he places it there in the front of the house to show its glory so that everyone sees it and they ooh and awe at it whenever they walk into the house. The same lump, he takes another piece of clay and makes a, uh, a bathroom out of it, a toilet, or uh, a trash can out of it, and they throw their waste into those things. Can the one complain and gripe and say, this isn't fair? It's not fair that I'm a trash can and that other piece of clay was made into this piece of artwork. No, because he can do whatever he wants. The clay can't answer back to the potter and say this, nor can the beautiful, the one with artwork, boast and say to the trash can, I'm better than you, right? Look at what I did for myself. No, because what does he have that he didn't receive? Everything he has has been given to him by God. So the one who is beautiful art can only relish and praise God and thank God that you made me a piece of artwork instead of making me a trash can. And the trash can cannot complain and say, this isn't fair or right, because he can do whatever he wants with his own. Can't God do that? Don't we do that with what is our own, whatever we please? So this is how God is as well. And why does he do this? Why does he make one piece of clay, one a vessel for honorable use, and another for common or for a dishonorable use? Well, it is to demonstrate his wrath and make known his power to vessels of wrath. How can God manifest and display his wrath if there's not something to pour out his wrath upon? How can he demonstrate his power in condemnation, in destruction, if there is not someone to demonstrate that upon? And this is why he does it. And it has another purpose, to make known the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy. The vessels of mercy more greatly and clearly understand the grace and mercy of God to them in contrast to the wrath that is given to the reprobate. 
So if everyone received mercy, then there would not be the contrast by which to see and understand our mercy in contrast to the condemnation. But it is as Lazarus is in a place of paradise, and as he sees the rich man in a place of torment, doesn't Lazarus have a better understanding of the grace of God given to him when he sees his own position in contrast to the torment of the rich man? And this is what God is doing. And all of that is to bring glory to God, to manifest and to display God's glory. Matthew 25. And this he does amongst both the Jews and the Greeks. Some Jews, vessels of honor. Some Jews, vessels of dishonor. Some Greeks, vessels of honor. Some Greeks, vessels of dishonor. And what makes the difference is the grace of God based upon the election of God. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verses 21 and 34. It says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here, this is what the righteous will receive, what the believer, the elect, will receive on the day of judgment. They will hear these words, Well done, good and faithful Slave, you enter into the joy of your master, into the heavenly kingdom of your master. And then here in verse 34, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This kingdom God has prepared for his children, for his people, from the foundation of the world. Meaning from all time, for all eternity, this was God's purpose. This was his purpose in creating the world was so that the elect could enter into eternal glory, to have and to inherit the kingdom of God. They enter into the joy of their master. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. Verses 6 to 8. 2 Timothy 4 verse 6 says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So this, at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul, testifying concerning his own life, he knows that his departure is coming that he's about to die, and then he's going to go from this life into the life to come. Concerning his own life, he knows that he's been faithful to the Lord. He has fought the good fight. He finished the course. He's kept the faith. In saying this, he's not being braggadocious. He's not being arrogant and proud. He's not trusting and relying on his own strength. But this is a true testimony of his life. By the grace of God, he became the man of God. He became the man that he was. And what was true of his life, not that he was a perfect man, but he did persevere. He did, through many tribulations, persevere. He did not abandon the Lord. He did not forsake the Lord. He did not turn away and fall away from the faith, but he persevered to the very end. And as a result of his salvation that was manifested in his endurance, 
then in the future there is a crown of righteousness waiting for him. Waiting in heaven for him. An eternal crown, an imperishable crown, that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He's going to give to him this inheritance of the crown of righteousness. And that's not only for him, but he says, for all who loved his appearing. Not just me, because I'm an apostle. We're not apostles. He was an apostle, but we're not apostles. So we might say, well, that's only for him. He was an apostle. No, it's for all who loved his appearing. And who loves the appearing of the Lord? Not the wicked, not the reprobate. They might say that they want Jesus to come back, but they don't believe it, not in the true and proper sense. But the righteous, they do long for the return of Christ. They long for nothing more than to be done with this world, to be done with the flesh, to be done with sin, to be done with the wicked, and to see their Savior and Lord face to face. They long greatly for the coming of Christ. And all who have that hope will receive the same reward of the holy apostle. This is what God has in store for those who love him. A crown of righteousness and a kingdom, an inheritance waiting for them in heaven. And this is what we ought to live for. Then for the unbeliever, the ungodly, the wicked, Matthew 25, what awaits them but eternal torments? Right? And we have to have both of these in our mind. Both of these in our mind. One, the reward to encourage us and motivate us. Right? Isn't that good? Don't we want a reward? Well, that should motivate us to live a godly life. But then also the punishment to give us the fear of God. To give us the fear of the Lord so that we hate sin and we want to avoid it and we don't fall into a crowd in doing evil and become like the people of this world, seeing what awaits them, what terrors and torment awaits them in the life to come. Both of those we need in order to cause us to persevere through the tribulations of this world. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Then verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There, when Jesus says, depart from me, who is he talking to? The accursed ones, those who are accursed by God. They're under the curse of God because they're in their sin. It is their sin that brings about the curse of God. They are accursed because they are remaining in their sin. And because they are accursed by God, then they will have as their portion, as their inheritance, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil, his angels, and the wicked. They will all have eternal fire for all eternity. Right? That's repetitive. We don't even need to say it. But there are people who think, well, eternal doesn't mean eternal. Well, what else does it mean if not eternal? It's never ending. Once a person leaves this life, then our eternal destiny is fixed. It's either eternal salvation, eternal joys, eternal comforts, eternal pleasures with the Lord for all eternity, or it is eternal death and torment for all eternity, and it's irrevocable at that point. We cannot go from one to the other. 
This is why it's so important for us to take these things seriously, to take it very seriously, and to warn others, right? To tell others about the day of judgment so that they too might avoid the place of torment. Isn't that what the rich man wanted Lazarus to go back and tell his brothers? Because he wanted them to avoid that place of torment? How can that rich man in hell have more compassion than we do for the unbeliever? No, we should warn them as well, and we should warn them in the same way that Abraham told them to be warned. They should listen to Moses and the prophets. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and we'll pick up in verse 42. Mark 9, 42 says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So there, how serious should we take it? Well, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your foot causes you to sin, chop it off. Isn't that severe? Isn't that taking it very serious? To go to those kinds of measures. Now, of course, the problem isn't the hand, the eye, or the foot. The problem is sin. So what we need to do to get rid of sin, that's what we need to get rid of. So if there is a person who's tempting me and causing me to sin, what do I need to do to that person? Get rid of them, right? Get rid of them, get away from them, and don't let their bad company corrupt my good morals. If there's something that causes me to be tempted, then stay away from it, right? Don't go to those places. Don't be around those people that are going to cause you to sin. Because it's better to do without those things in this life than to go to hell, to unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Right, that's a, tr- a dreadful thing, a terrifying thing to enter into that judgment. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Again, we have to have the fear of God. The fear of God. This is the missing ingredient today in the churches. No fear of God. No fear of God. And why should we fear God according to Matthew chapter 10? Do not fear him, right, who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. I will show you the one that you should fear. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We should fear God because he can destroy our body and our soul in hell. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 11. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed." 
To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There, when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, again, there will be a twofold uh, reality, a twofold thing that will be accomplished. One, he will give relief to us who are afflicted, his church, his people, who now are being afflicted as strangers and aliens in this world. They suffer many tribulations to enter into the kingdom of God. And ultimately, our deliverance from all of our afflictions will be when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. He comes to save us, to take us to heaven where there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more affliction, no more sin, no more temptation, no more flesh, no more world, no more devil. He's going to deliver us, and at the same time, he's going to afflict those who afflict us by giving them eternal destruction. He's going to pour out his wrath and condemnation upon the ungodly, right? Those who did not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will get what they deserve, right? That's what he says in verse 6. Repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and God considers it just. How can he not do this? This is what they did to his people. This is what he will do to them. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. That's what God will do for them. They afflicted his people. Now God will afflict them in turn for all eternity because of what they have done. Okay, then finally, paragraph three. It says, Christ desires that we be firmly convinced that a day of judgment will come, both to deter everyone from sin and to comfort the godly more fully in their adversity. For this reason, he has determined to keep the day a secret, to encourage people to shake off any fleshly security and always be watchful because they do not know the hour when the Lord will come so that they may always be prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. Here, Christ desires that we be firmly convinced that a day of judgment will come. We have to have this in our mind. Anyone who tells us that there is no day of judgment or that there is a day of judgment, but everyone's going to make it in because God loves everyone. God loves everyone, and everyone's going to be saved. This is what universalism teaches, inclusivism teaches. It doesn't matter if you're a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Christian, a Catholic, a Muslim, a Mormon, whatever. As long as we're good people and we're sincere and we mean well, then we're all going to make it to heaven one day, right? They're essentially, when people are teaching that, what are they denying? They're denying the day of judgment. They're denying the true day of judgment and how God judges the world. They'll say, well, yeah, maybe people like Hitler or Stalin, they're going to go to hell, but not us. Not us, not our children, our grandchildren. We're all swell, fine folks. We're good Christian people. We're all going to make it. No, we can't have this attitude. We have to be fully convinced of the day of judgment according to the teaching in the Bible, the way it's described in the Bible. That there will be many on that day who say to me, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, right? You workers of lawlessness. That there will be many people on that day who claim to be Christians, who claim to be children of God, and Jesus will say to them, I don't know who you are. You say that you know me, but I don't know you. And if he doesn't know us, then we don't know him. And then we will depart into eternal destruction. So we must be convinced of it. And it must produce the fear of God in us 
to deter us from sin, right? Doesn't sin because of the flesh? It still has a pull upon us. And we want to take sin lightly because of the flesh. And the day of judgment teaches us to take it very seriously. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Second Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men that we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. So there, he's reminding them that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, all of us to get a recompense for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. We will all stand before Christ and give an account. And that's why he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Right? Who knows the fear of the Lord? He does, the Apostle Paul. So if the Apostle Paul had the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord was because of the day of judgment, then do we need the fear of the Lord? Absolutely. And this is what motivated him to persuade other men to be reconciled to God because of his proper fear of God coming from the knowledge of the day of judgment. He was warning men to be ready for that day because they would have to give an account to God as well. So we have to take it very, very seriously. Okay, and also they say to comfort the godly more fully in their adversity. This is what we just read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 5 and 7. Right, that God is comforting us with the knowledge of the day of judgment. Because when our enemies rise up against us and they will persecute us, they'll say horrible things about us, all manner of evil against us falsely for the sake of Christ. They're going to revile us, ridicule us, persecute us. They're going to do these kinds of things. Well, what is the hope for the godly? That one day their enemies will have to give an account of what they have done that God will get justice for us because we're forbidden, Romans chapter 12, of getting justice on our own. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Right? The Lord will avenge his people. So God will give justice to his people on the day of judgment, and this is our comfort. We don't have to get justice for ourselves. We don't have to go out and get vengeance for ourselves. Otherwise, what about righteous Stephen that we read about this morning? Well, he died. They killed him. So where's justice for him if there is no day of judgment? What about someone like Hitler who killed himself? Where was the justice? He didn't have to answer for his crimes. So when will he answer for his crimes? On the day of judgment. This is the comfort for God's people, knowing that our enemies, those who malign us and say horrible things about us and persecute us, that one day God will make them answer for all of their sins and he will make them confess that God loved us. And we will bathe our feet in the blood of the wicked, as it says in Psalm 58. And they will bow down before us and say, God loved us. And that we were right and they were wrong. And we wait for that on the day of judgment. And that is a comfort for us. It's not something to, to, uh, to hate. It's not something for us to go, oh, this doesn't seem uh, like the kind of God that we want to worship. Yes, that's the God we want to worship, a just God, a just and a righteous God who 
avenges his people for the sins committed against them. Okay, next. For this reason, he is determined to keep the day a secret, to encourage people to shake off any fleshly security and always be watchful because they do not know the hour when the Lord will come. In terms of the exact day, the exact hour, it is a secret. In terms of the reality of it, it is well known to us. We all know that there's a day of the Lord. We know the day of judgment is coming. So that's not a secret at all. And the day of the Lord will not surprise us because we are expecting it. We're waiting for it. We're hastening the coming day of the Lord. But the exact day or the exact hour, none of us knows. And this is intentional. Do we need to know the exact day or hour? No, we don't need to know. All we need to know is that the Lord is coming. And that should be sufficient motivation for us to live a godly life. To say, I know my master is returning. I don't know when he's going to return, but I'm a wise and a faithful slave. And because I want to be a wise, faithful slave, then what do I need to be doing? The will of my master. Then if I'm doing his will, it doesn't matter if he comes back today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. If I'm doing his will, it doesn't matter when he returns because when he comes, he will find me being a faithful and wise slave. And he will say, enter into the joy of your master. But it is the wicked slave who says, my master is delayed and I bet he won't be back tomorrow or next week. It'll probably be a long time from now. I'll go out and get drunk. I'll go out and live a loose, carefree life. I'll go beat my other fellow slaves. And he's doing those kinds of things, lazing around, not taking it seriously. And then the master comes in a day when he's not expected. And what does he find? He finds that this one who claims to be a slave is not really. He's a wicked slave. And he will be cast into outer darkness. So all we need to know is that the Lord is coming back. We don't need to know the day or hour. And anyone out there who says they know the day, they say they know the hour, and they will share that information with you for $20. Hundred dollars, whatever it is, you know, they'll give you this secret knowledge as well. We know immediately that person is a liar, he is a fraud, he is a phony, because he is explicitly contradicting the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we should not listen to that person, we should not give him our money, and we should warn other people don't listen to that person. He is a fraud and a phony. Mark chapter 13. Mark 13. Mark 13, verse 24. Speaking of the return of Christ. Mark 13, 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So is this coming of the Son of Man, is it something that we might miss? that people are going to be like, oh, we don't know. Maybe he came, maybe he didn't. No, it's obvious he's coming with the clouds, with great power and glory. When he comes, it will be obvious because there are those people as well who say the day of the Lord has already come, right? And we all missed it. No, we shouldn't listen to those people either because we know when he comes, it'll be obvious. He comes with the clouds, with great power, with his holy angels as well in the sky. It'll be visible, unmistakable. 
And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. So there is the key, right? There is the key. Now, a couple of things from this passage. One, when Jesus says this generation will not pass away, he means this age, this age, this generation, the time in between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, the last days, right? This generation or this age will not pass away until these things are accomplished, until the coming of the Son of Man. Then one other thing that people get hung up on, the day or the hour, no one knows, not the angels nor the Son, but the Father in heaven. This Jesus is speaking in terms of his humanity, in terms of his incarnation. He's not saying that there are things that as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that the Father knows that he does not know. This cannot be the case because he is fully God, right? He is omniscient. God knows all things. He's saying this in terms of his humanity. In terms of his humanity, there were things that were true of Jesus as a man that are not true of him as God. For example, can God die? No. But did Jesus die? Yes. So when Jesus died on the cross, are we to assume that God died or that God has the ability to die? No. What about eating? Does God eat? No. What about sleeping? Does God need to sleep? No. But did Jesus need to eat? Did Jesus need to sleep? So when we read in the Bible that Jesus ate or Jesus slept or there's something that Jesus didn't know or Jesus grew weary, we understand those things in relation to his humanity because he was made like us as a man in every way except without sin. Now that's necessary to say because there are people out there, our own Maceo met one just this week, his Greek professor at the so-called Bible college that he goes to that said that maybe we should rethink our theology about God because there are things that Jesus didn't know and maybe there are things that God doesn't know. Well, no, we shouldn't rethink our theology about God. We should rethink our thoughts about you, man, right? That's what we should rethink, not our theology about God. Okay, but here, Jesus, the key to living the godly life and being ready for the coming of the Son of Man, right? We don't need to say, oh, this is very depressing that he didn't tell us the exact day or hour. No, even Jesus in his humanity did not know the exact day or hour. So why would we think that we deserve something that he didn't receive? And the holy angels don't know the exact day or hour. And so why would we think that we're better than them? No, all we need to know is that he is coming. And until he comes, he has given us our task. He has told us what we need to do, right? He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. 
And he's said, be ready by being faithful. So what do we need to do? Live a godly life. That's what we need to do. Live a godly life so that when he returns, whether it's in the evening, in the morning, when the rooster crows, in the middle of the night, whether it's today, tomorrow, or in 50 years, it doesn't matter because we are doing the will of our master. And he will find us doing his will and be pleased with us. That's all that we need to know. So be alert. And this is necessary because if we knew the day or hour, then the flesh would use it as an opportunity to sin. We would say, okay, he's not coming back for 10 years, so I'll live in sin for nine years, and then I'll, I'll get my act together that last year, and then I'll have everything worked out. Don't people think like this? They even think like this today. They'll say, I'll become a Christian later in life. That way I can have a good time, and then right before I die, I'll become a Christian so I can go to heaven. This is how perverse, sick, twisted the mind of man is, the flesh is, and that's why we don't need to know the day or the hour. Luke 12, 35. Luke 12, 35 says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at table and will come and wait on them. Notice that. Where has this ever happened? Where has it ever happened that the master comes home and the master girds himself and the master tells the slaves recline at the table and the master waits on them? Only our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has a master like the Lord Jesus Christ? This is why we read earlier today, you have dealt well with your servant. This is the master that we have. So how can it be a burden for us to obey his will, to do what's pleasing to him, seeing that he's such a good master to us? This is why we should be ready. Be ready and be alert. Whether he come in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. So you're blessed if you are found ready, ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're living a godly life, then we can truly pray this prayer, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. If we're not living a godly life, we can't say that in truth. We might say it superficially, but we cannot mean it because we know if he comes, he's going to find us being disobedient to God, and that's not going to be good. Revelation 22, verse 20. 22.20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. I am coming quickly, he says. And then he answers back, the Apostle John, Yes, come, Lord Jesus. This should be our response as well. For the Lord Jesus to return so that we can see him face to face. Face to face and enter into the joy of our master and receive the final outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, the redemption of our bodies to be made like Jesus for all eternity. This should be the desire of all of the slaves of Christ. May it be our desire as well. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given to us, Lord, to prepare us 
Lord, to equip us for everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Lord, we know that we desperately need the fear of the Lord. Lord, that without the fear of the Lord, there is no wisdom. Lord, there is no knowledge. There is no salvation if we do not have a proper fear and understanding of you. Lord, this must include the day of judgment. Lord, this reality that everyone will stand before you, that everyone will give an account, Lord, for what he has done. Lord, we pray that we would have this in our mind and that this truth, Lord, would cause us to, Lord, live in fear and trembling before you. Lord, to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. And Lord, to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful and wise slaves. Lord, who, when you come, Lord, are found doing the will of their master. Lord, if we are obedient to you, and Lord, living a godly life, then we have nothing to fear. Lord, it doesn't matter if you come back today or, Lord, some other time, because you will find us doing your will. Lord, it is only those who are living in sin, who are practicing sin, Lord, who are presuming upon the grace of God. They are the ones, Lord, that will be terrified at that day. And so, Father, we pray that we would live with a clean conscience before you. Lord, always doing that which is pleasing in your sight. Lord, and in the fear of the Lord that we would be perfected in holiness. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to do your will this week. Lord, to live as faithful and wise slaves this week. Lord, to do your will in all things, and Lord, to seek you in your kingdom, Lord, above our own interest. Lord, that your kingdom would be all that matters to us. Lord, give us safety as we travel home today, and Lord, we pray that you continue to bless this Lord's Day. Lord, as we are with our families, and Lord, as we are in our homes, Lord, may we worship you throughout the day. And Lord, we thank you for our time together this day, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.